Yes, Lord, I offer you my words and ask that you might speak through them. That we might hear the words you need us to hear this morning. Either challenge or encouragement. Either rebuke or consolation. Speak, O Lord, fill us up. Make us what you want us to be. And help us to stand on your promises. Amen. In 1926, a 17-year-old called Ingvar did quite well in a set of school exams. And so his father gave him some money as a sort of well-done present. Now, a lot of blokes at 17 might have thought, oh, I'll have a holiday with that. Maybe they will football have a car. I don't know how much it is, I suppose. Put it in savings for college. Maybe just general party. Not Ingvar. Ingvar was different. From an early age, he had wanted to start a business. And he started out small and local. He produced pens and wallets, picture frames, table runners, watches, jewelry, nylon stockings. All at prices lower than what the others were like. Sound. He did quite well. And gradually he decided to go a bit bigger and he started making a few pieces of furniture. And in 1951, he launched a catalogue. And he started still, still quite locally, but he, it was actually an increase of sale. And then in a few years later, another company came on the market, also selling cut price furniture. And the, a price war began. and they, it, you know, it threatened to uh, you know, destroy both of them, you know, if they just didn't uh, do something about it. And that was when Ingvar hit upon his next idea. He opened a showroom. Customers could come in and see what he was selling. They could touch and feel the quality of this so that they would know that they weren't being sort of done. And the idea improved, it proved successful. And his business not only survived the price war, it thrived in it. And then much later, into the 80s, he started moving into new markets. USA, France, Italy, UK, sometimes later into Japan and Russia. And now he had a thoroughly international business. And he kept producing these catalogues. And you know, at the height of it, in 2016, he was distributing 200 million copies of this thing in 32 different languages. That is a greater circulation than the Bible of the Quran. And what had started local had gone global. And I would make a fairly good stab that most people my age and younger have at least one item in their home that's tracked back to Ingvar. Does anyone know which company I'm talking about? If I tell you his name was Ingvar Kamprad, he grew up in Altrin Farm in the village of Agnarud. My wife would be horrified by pronunciation. 
and his initials, the name of the farm and the name of his village, tell you I'm talking about Ikea. And you'll have heard of them, even if you've never shopped. How many people have at least one piece of Ikea furniture in their eyes? Eh? Alright, okay. Well, last week we started a new series on the theme of Colin. And this is the Bible word for a series of promises, commitments, resolutions, if you like, that God makes with different people in the Bible. And if you missed last week's service, you can catch up on YouTube or the podcast. But we talked about how although these covenants are all established in the Old Testament, their effects are felt all the way into the New and Beyond. And they don't replace each other, they build on each other. And last week we started out by looking at the story of Noah. And over the next few weeks we'll consider promises made to Moses and Israel, to David, of a new covenant spoken of by Jeremiah. <coughs> But today we're thinking about the story of Abraham. Okay, in today's reading, he's called Abraham. God changes his name a bit later. But I know full well that if I start off with the best of intentions, I'll only say Abraham because that's his name at that stage in the story. I'm going to get it wrong. So I'll lapse the Abraham in no time. And it's the same person. And when Paul and James quote this passage, the passage we read this morning, they both referred to him as Abraham. So I'm going to do the same. It's Abraham. And like Noah, you might have heard of him, even if you never sat foot in church, because after all, Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. So I'm one of them. That's right. So we'll come back to it for us, But last week we saw that God's covenant is global. Not just with Noah and his family, humanity even, but with every living creature in all of creation. But the Abraham story marks a whole new chapter. And God begins by going local. Very local. In fact, God zooms in on one individual. Abraham. And his story begins properly in chapter 12. When God comes to him and says, Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's quite a big step forward. God's promise to Abraham or to Noah was one of preservation. Never again will I destroy the earth by a flood. The rainbow could be viewed as God hanging up his bow. A God promising the earth will not be destroyed by a flood. And that's good as far as it goes. But with Abraham, God shows that his intentions are far better. He goes way beyond simply not causing harm. This is a God who wants all that makes for our highest good. A God who wants us to be blessed. A God is not just committed to our preservation. God wants us to be blessed. God is committed to blessing. But if it starts local, goes further. He starts off by going, by saying, I'm going to make you a great nation. 
But that's not the end game. God is not, Abraham is not being blessed for his own end, but because he is getting, or he's anything special in the of himself, he's being blessed for the sake of the whole earth. God might be starting local, but he's going global. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And God, by starting local, his end game is global. And to a very great extent, Abraham is blessed. He's actually quite rich when he starts out. He's not, you know, he's not sort of an hour he's, he's, he's a rich bloke. And uh, it gets even more so as he goes along. He goes down to Egypt. He creates a whole situation of his own making, his own fault. And he gets into trouble with Pharaoh and he's kicked out. But somehow he emerges being given more wealth than he went in with. Unfortunately, as we see, having wealth doesn't necessarily deal with all your problems. And in fact, it creates a whole set of new ones. And his wealth becomes a source of dispute. Eventually, the land he and his nephew Lot are sharing, it can't sustain, they're getting so wealthy, it can't sustain all their herds, flocks, their possessions, and this kind of becomes a source of hostility, and they end up parting ways. And then Lot gets into trouble, and you want to get a sense that Abraham is kind of not that way off. Uh, Lot gets into trouble, and Abraham sets off on a rescue mission with 318 members of his own household. 318 staff. And that's just the blokes. It gives you a sense. He's quite wealthy. We sometimes think of Abraham in a wilderness, and there's just a couple of tents there. 318 people are on the staff here. And they're just the ones he chooses to send out to fight. And the stories go some way to showing how big an ask it is for God to bless the world through Abraham and his family. Because throughout the whole story, there are pretty dysfunctional laws. They had enough trouble being a blessing to each other, let alone the whole world. But chapter 15 is central to the whole Abraham story. Because at the start of chapter 15, there is a whopping, great, big, gaping hole in the blessing. Abraham has been promised he's going to have land, he's going to be a great nation. There's no point in having land if we've got no one to live on. You can't have a nation if you don't have the son. He has no son, and he has all this wealth, and nobody to pass it on to. And sure, you can leave it to a slave, but he's Surely this wasn't what you had in mind when you made me a promise when I said I. And it's like Abraham's done his bit. He's left home with people, the family, pardon me. He's gone to a place where God sent him. But God hasn't done the one thing needful. If this whole blessing thing is going to come to pass. And nor is it looking likely to say Abraham is getting on a bit. It's putting it mildly. The New Testament writer to the Hebrews didn't mince his words. He said, Abraham was as good as dead. And Abraham is said to be the father of all those who have faith. He's an exemplary model for us. 
That doesn't mean he always gets it right. All of it comes easy. And yeah, there are, Abraham knows his place. And there are times when God tells him something and Abraham says, okay, yeah, no problem, and jumps to it. But not always. Where Abraham is really exemplary is that Abraham is honest with God. He says, God, what is the point of you keeping on blasting me if I've got no one to leave it to? Except Eliezer of Damascus. You haven't given me an heir. So God assures him he'll have a son and then says, Go outside, look up in the night sky. Look up and count the stars if indeed you can. That's what your offspring's going to be like. And we get a verse that becomes very important throughout the Bible. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. that verse clearly resonated with the first Christians. It's quoted no fewer than three times in the New Testament. In Romans 4, 3 it says, What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In Galatians 3, chapter 6, it says, So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Or in James 2, 23, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Three times. However, there's something about faith that at times we will find ourselves waiting for what we felt as promised. For us as for Abraham, it can make feel like we're holding on to a belief when all of the evidence is screaming against it. He said, I want it and I want it now. But God's timing is different than ours. And God's hand can't be forced. And everything remains within his hands. But God's delays are not the violence of his promise. The whole point of the Abraham story, the whole point of that get up and leave everything now, is that things can be different. That tomorrow doesn't have to be a repeat of today. That God can provide a break point with the past and out of it create a whole new future. But something else we see in this passage is that having questions, having doubts, is not the opposite of faith. It is part and parcel of having faith. It is because of his faith that Abraham can be honest enough to ask God the honest question. And it's worth noting that right after this key verse, you know, the moment just read that I loved it so much, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What happens next? The Lord says to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give.
give you this miracle that's asked. And what does Abraham say? Yeah, but I'm not a devil. How, how shall I not possess that? It's just until they just believe God. How do I know? And how does God respond? Does God say, oh, for goodness sake, how many times did I have to repeat it? You're supposed to be the faith guy. Tell you what, forget it, I'll find someone else. No. God doesn't do that. God can handle the honest question. If there's one thing that God can't handle, it's dishonesty, inauthenticity. There's a lot, not a lot God can do with somebody if we won't be honest with him or with ourselves. That's the one thing that God really dislikes. And so God says, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, and what was three years old? A turtle dove, a young pigeon. And Abraham does this, and he cuts them in two, he lays them down side by side, but a little apart. And then as evening falls, Abraham himself falls into a deep sleep. And a sort of like a night terror thing comes upon him, and the Lord speaks to him again. Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and they shall be slaves there. They'll be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. And as for you yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here. And then, in the dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. What a weird story, which opens up lots of questions. For a start, God tells Abraham to get the animals. He doesn't say what to do with them. So how does Abraham know what he's supposed to do? And what's going on with this whole fire pot and torch thing? Well, it seems in a well-established tradition in the ancient world was about making covenants. And the actual language used for agreeing, making, or establishing a covenant was to cut a covenant. Hence the kind of cutting of the animals. And both within the Bible and outside the Bible, we have evidence of covenant-making rituals that look like this. Within Jeremiah 34, there is a covenant set up and it looks very like what uh, Abraham does here. In fact, it seems to be referring back to that Abraham story. But even outside the Bible, there is a record of a Middle Eastern treaty between the king of Assyria and the king of Arpad, a city in Syria. And the treaty document describes how a lamb was to be brought to the treaty confirmation ceremony to be dismembered. And it records a prayer that the king was expected, the king of Arpana, was expected to pray in this ceremony. 
and he was to walk between the pieces of the dismembered carcass and he prays that if he does not keep the commitment that he is making to the king of Assyria, may the same thing happen to him as has happened to this lamb. But there's one surprising element here. There's one bit where God totally rips up the script. Because when they cut the covenants, it seems that it was the weaker party who was to walk between the pieces. It was their way of saying, okay, I accept that the best thing I can do is submit to you. And I accept that things aren't going to end well for me if I don't keep this covenant. But what do we get here? flaming torches were images of God and it is God not Abraham who walks between the pieces God is saying I've made this promise and it is my honor my reputation on the line that I don't fulfill this and it's a pledge to the death it's as if God's saying I will fulfill what I promised, even if it kills me. Even if I have to die to deliver it. And God is faithful and committed to us. Even when we're not. Okay, Abraham does have the son and he lives to see his grandkids. Even if the whole promise thing remains to be complete. And the story doesn't go magically smoothly from this point. In the very next chapter, Abraham, you know that one who believed God that was credited to him as righteousness, the father of the faithful and all that. The very next chapter, his faith wavers and he decides I've got a shortcut, shortcut process by having a child with my slave girl, Hagar. And the reverberations of that, in terms of those who claim their roots from Ishmael, the son he has with Hagar, and those who claim their descendancy from Isaac, the son of Abraham eventually fathers with Sarah, the reverberations of that are still being felt to this day. You think two brothers in the royal family fighting? Not, not this. The promise of the child will be delayed longer, but God grows faithful. His commitment to his promise is as strong as ever. But this was always more than a story about God just settling one family in a cozy home in the Middle East. It was about the blessing of the whole world. God had started local. And it would be a long time before it got away from being local. But he was going global. And through that family would come a people who would carry the promise of blessing for the whole world. And that would reach its fulfillment in Jesus. A God who sent Jesus into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. And Jesus was committed to it. 
that Jesus, God says, I will fulfill my desire for all creation, even if it costs me my life, even if I have to die to deliver it. And he was prepared to go to the cross because of his great passion for the blessing of the whole world. It started local. So the phrase we often use for, for trying to describe the size of something. But Jesus never really traveled outside an area about the size of Wales. Why is it almost the size of Wales that we have these things? But it's gone global. He said, from a mustard seed, the tiniest of all seeds, would grow a plant in the birds of the air would perch its branches. And the story of Jesus has reverberated around our world to the point where two billion people around the globe claim to be his followers. By faith, Father Abraham does have many sons. He also has many daughters. I am one of them. And so can you be, if you will, just do what Abraham did, trust in God and what he's done. Oh yeah, we'll get it wrong. We can be faltering, we can be faithless as those who have gone before us. We can get distracted by the detail and lose the big story and the picture of what it's all about. We struggle to be a blessing to one another sometimes, let alone be a blessing to the whole world. We have questions. God can handle that. But God is faithful even when we are not. God won't let go. God in Christ was prepared to lay down his life so that the world might be rescued, redeemed, blessed. And it's not complete. It won't be complete until he wipes every tear from our eyes and brings an end to mourning and crying and pain. But even now, in individual lives transformed through faith, in the actions of blessing in all sorts of little ways, from small acts of service, service right up to international justice movements, God is still in the business of blessing the whole world. It has started local, it has gone global. And with that in mind, to bring an end, I'm going to share a video I came across this week. Three years ago, around the start of the COVID pandemic, a song called The Blessing went viral. We've used it in a couple of our services, with lots of musicians coming together play to, virtually to play their part. And then gradually this idea spread to different parts of the world and whatever. And someone has now collected these things together for what is called the global blessing. Which I share with you now. 